Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This is Mike Smith. Here we go now with week three of the BC election campaign. We got terrific election coverage for you this morning on the show. So let's get right at it. In the city of Surrey, it is a crucial political battleground in this election. Nine seats up for grabs, and the plan by the city to get rid of the RCMP and replace the Mounties with a local police force has been controversial, to say the least. Now Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson has promised a local referendum in the city of Surrey to decide this issue once and for all. He joins me now. Andrew Wilkinson, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, very interesting move by you. I had a feeling you might promise this. Tell me why a referendum on policing in the city of Surrey. Well, as the election was called, we were of the view that there hadn't been enough transparency and disclosure to the people of Surrey of the cost and the structure of what's going on. And we were hearing that as rumblings. Since then, we've been knocking on people's doors and talking to people on the phone for 10 days. And my goodness, the groundswell of frustration about this is really strong in Surrey. So we checked around and talked to MLAs and said, you know, what's the right approach to this? And they said, you know, maybe the way to clear the air on this is to get full disclosure of the cost, because that's what people are really worried about in Surrey. How much is this going to cost? And they do not know. And then, of course, the provincial government under the NDP in February just gave this uh, a complete pass. They just let it roll through and uh, flick of the wrist, and wow. it's going to happen. So there's a lot of anxiety in Surrey, a lot of concern, and the obvious way to deal with this is to get full disclosure and then let the people of Surrey vote well, on it. Ac- well, actually, what the provincial government did was they appointed one of your former colleagues in the Liberal Party, uh, Wally Opal, to oversee the process of a transition to a local police force, and they say this is a local decision. And the local city council has decided this is the way to go. And Doug McCallum, the mayor of Surrey, won an election, clearly campaigned on this promise to replace the Mounties. And he's got a statement out this morning saying he's appalled. He says exactly, quote, I am appalled. The B.C. liberal leader has stooped to this level of desperation in an effort to get votes. How do you respond to the mayor? Well, instead of insulting me and insulting the people of Surrey, why don't we just tell them how much it's going to cost? Pretty straightforward question. Once they know that answer, then they'll be able to vote on it. Okay, how would this uh, how would this referendum work? Would this be a binding referendum? That can be sorted out as we get closer to it, and whether it's advisory or binding. Section one of the referendum act provides for a, quite a range of choices there, and it can also be confined to an area of British Columbia within which the referendum will be held. So there are a lot of options to sort this out, and this needs to be in consultation with the people of Surrey because they've been ignored through this for the most part. That's why they're so upset. Okay, let me play a clip here for you from Mike Farnworth, the, M- the NDP MLA running for re-election in Port Coquitlam. Of course, the Solicitor General, uh, this is his file on policing. He was on with Simi Sarah this morning, and he was asked his opinion of your promise here to hold a referendum. Here's what he said. I think it's a desperate uh, election flip-flop, because up until yesterday, uh, all the, uh, the Liberal MLAs in Surrey have all publicly acknowledged that this decision, by statute, is Surrey's decision to make. Okay, what do you say to him? 
Well, the NDP are pretty rich to be talking about things by statute. They passed a fixed election law and then promptly broke it. So this is a situation where the people of Surrey are very frustrated. We're hearing it loud and clear. And as you've probably heard on the call-in lines and otherwise, that there is a huge amount of support for having this referendum in Surrey. Okay, but this is a, obviously, would you, would you acknowledge that this is a local, this should be a local decision? The, the people in an individual municipality should make the call on what kind of police force they want? Well, when you read the Referendum Act, and it provides for a referendum to consider an expression of public opinion on any matter of public interest or concern, the provincial government can require that to happen in any designated area of British Columbia. That's what the law is designed for. And given the level of uh, tension about this in Surrey, it seems to be a very reasonable thing to actually ask the people of Surrey, after they've been told how much it'll cost, whether they want to proceed. And that's the key thing. What's it going to cost? Why won't the NDP tell us? Okay, well, there have been cost estimates put out for a local police police department, operating costs of a hundred and well, $200 million or so. Uh, what, you don't believe the cost estimates that have been put out already? Well, let's remember that uh, police forces these days are unionized, and the yeah. collective agreement that would be negotiated would determine the cost. And so has that happened yet? Obviously not. So tell us the cost and let us decide. That's the, what we're hearing from the people in Surrey on the doorstep, and it's a very reasonable question. Okay, you've got three MLAs in the city of Surrey. There are nine seats up for grabs. I know you want the Liberals to hang on to the seats they got and maybe win some other seats in other ridings. What is the position of the Liberal Party in a referendum going forward? Would you encourage people to, to vote uh, to keep the RCMP? Well, this is why it's a referendum to make that decision. Respect the decision of the people of Surrey. That's why the Referendum Act talks about the need to get an expression of public opinion on a matter of public interest well, or concern. That's well, exactly if, what this is. Well, if McCallum was here right now, the mayor, he would say you've already had a referendum. It was called a municipal election. He campaigned very clearly on a promise to replace the RCMP with a local police force, and he won a large majority. He's lost some support in that council, but he's still got the majority, and he's, he still clearly has the mandate to do this. So you're overruling him. Potentially, well, right? the people in Surrey, I think, are the ones who are starting to get uh, their position on the table, and it's tell me what it's going to cost. Why am I being kept in the dark if I lived in Surrey? And let's remember, Surrey is a small business community. There aren't a lot of big employers other than government. It's all about small businesses, and they're compressed completely to the wall. So the papers are saying today they're literally hanging on by a thread. And unfortunately, this B.C. election, which is totally unnecessary, as the paper says, delays $2 billion in promised pandemic aid. That's what's on the minds of people of Surrey, you, is how are they going to survive, and can they afford to pay for this police force? So how much is it going to cost? Why won't you tell me? Okay, do you think, well, as I, I repeat to you again, that they've already put out a cost estimate in the, in the city for, for a local police force. It would be more expensive than the, than the local, the, the RCMP they have right now. But you're saying, what, you think it could be more than that, what they've said? Well, you've also got to take it to the individual level and clarify how it's going to be paid for, presumably through property taxes. So what we're hearing from the people of Surrey is, tell me what my bill's going to look like. I've got enough financial problems already. Is this necessary at this time as we got hit with COVID? Remember, all this move to a municipal police force came long before COVID hit us and kicked the stuffing out of the economy. Okay, last question for you. Do you think the RCMP are doing a good job in the city of Surrey right now? Oh, I'm not someone to judge the performance of police forces. That's done by the people who manage police forces. In the case of the RCMP, it is the province of British Columbia. Interesting issue. Thank you for coming on. 
Thanks so much, Mike. Uh, Look forward uh, to talking again. And let's remember, get John Horgan on and ask him a few questions. Yeah, we're, we've asked for him. Thank you for that. Uh, that's uh, Andrew Wilkinson, the Liberal leader. We've asked for the Premier to come on, uh, the NDP leader, John Horgan, and we hope he does come on in the days ahead. The uh, promise is flying fast and furious here in this election campaign. Let's check in with the NDP now. They promise a rebate to BC drivers for savings at ICBC from COVID-19. Uh, my guest is David Eby, running for re-election in Vancouver Point Grey. Of course, the, uh, the Attorney General. Hi, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike. Okay, thanks. For, thank you for doing this. Let's talk about this promised rebate to BC drivers. Why now? Like, I we've been talking about this for months, and I remember the Liberals uh, actually put in a private members' bill in the legislature to give a rebate to BC drivers, and of course, it was never called for debate by the government. Why are you guys doing this now? Well, we passed a law that requires that any profits at ICBC go to the benefit of drivers. That governments can't pull them out of ICBC, as the Liberals did. They pulled out over a billion dollars into. Uh, general government accounts. And so we passed a law to make sure the money stayed with drivers, which left two options. One is to build capital at ICBC, so future year's rates are lower. And the other was uh, rebate for drivers to send the money back to drivers. Fortunately, ICBC is now, because of many changes that we've made, in a more profitable position, but also because of COVID with people driving less and fewer accidents. And so uh, the Premier, uh, in uh, conversations with uh, me and based on the performance of uh of icbc we're six months into the fiscal year felt comfortable putting in the platform that uh, we will return uh to drivers uh the profits made as a result of reduced accidents because of the public health measures around COVID. and uh the money was always going to benefit drivers whether staying in capital with icbc or, or going back in rebates and it was the feeling okay. of uh John, that uh, it was important for families right now to see that money coming back and to know that they would see that coming back at fiscal year end. Okay, we've, had, we've seen other provinces do this uh, many months ago, give rebates now. So I don't know, it just smacks a bit like election timing here to say you resisted giving these rebates until now and then suddenly we're in the middle of election campaign and you promise the rebates. Well, it's important to remind people, I mean, they've been very patient. We've had to do some really serious surgery on ICBC. We were handed a patient in critical condition, losing a billion dollars a year and, and electioneering tricks before the last election, pretending to sell the corporate headquarters and the URL ICBC.com in order to try to make the books look balanced when they weren't. Uh, and so, you know, people uh, stayed with us through these difficult changes and there was some strong resistance from special interest groups that are profiting from the existing system. But now we've got the law in place to reduce rates by 20%. We've got ICBC on a stable and profitable financial footing, and people deserve to know that their patience is being rewarded, that their public insurer is returning profits back to them. And uh, and it's not a trick, an electioneering trick. Uh, like the Liberals pulled where we're making the insurer look profitable when they're not, this is on a very strong foundation of significant reforms that we've made. And so we know okay. that it's sustainable, and we can defend it at the BC Utilities Commission. Uh, as well as the 20% rate reduction that people are going to see May 1st when we shift to the new care okay. system. This is how a much, big savings for families. How much will drivers get in the rebate? ICBC is saving money here from lower accident rates, fewer people driving during the pandemic. How much How much dr should drivers expect to receive in a rebate check? So there are two uh, different rebates that drivers can expect. The first is the shift to the new care-based system. So if you paid your insurance up front for the whole year, you'll see money coming back because there'll be an average 20% reduction. That's an average of about $400 per driver. That's uh, separate and apart from this. On the COVID rebate, the numbers will be determined at fiscal year end. But in the first quarter, ICBC reported a $300 million surplus, uh, which is obviously a significant 
uh, amount of money for a surplus for ICBC and individual drivers. It will depend on what they paid for their insurance. Well, ICBC announced in September there that it had saved $329 million in reduced claims. Can BC drivers expect to get at least that much money? Yes, we feel, comfortable, we feel comfortable saying that the first quarter uh, surplus of $300 million is, uh, is the basis of what a rebate would be. And it could be more um, depending on, uh, on how ICBC's performance is through the rest of the year. Okay, speaking to NDP MLA, David Eby running for re-election in Vancouver Point. Great. When will drivers get the rebate check? So both uh, major changes come around the end of fiscal year uh, for ICBC. Uh, and the reason for that is just the logistics of getting the checks out. So the end of uh, the fiscal year is March 31st for the rebate checks to know uh, what the final amount will be. That's right. And then well, May why not 1st. right now? Why not? Why not quicker well, than that? People need need help right now. You guys have saved yeah. all this money for months. Yeah, it was the same issue uh, before the election. We want to make sure that we're providing the rebate, the appropriate rebate to drivers, and we're doing it in a responsible way. So fiscal year end is the way that we can do that. And then also um, for the COVID, uh, or pardon me, for the shift to the new insurance-based system, that's on May 1st. So that's when drivers can expect to see that 20% reduction uh, that's going to last uh, going forward for drivers uh, because we're shifting the system, getting the legal costs well, out to help pay for these uh, better benefits and lower rates. Okay, why wait for six months, though, to give drivers a rebate on savings that ICBC has been realizing for months? Like, if you take a look at other provinces, the Ontario government just released an estimate of how much insurance companies have given back there, a billion dollars in Ontario. In Alberta, they say insurers are returning an average of $302 per driver to drivers in Alberta. So that's money that's already gone to drivers in these other provinces, and now you're asking people to wait another six months? Yeah, so the, I mean, I just encourage everybody to really interrogate the numbers that are being provided by the private insurance industry. That's from the government. Uh, you know, we heard things like 90% discounts uh, uh, that were provided for COVID uh, on insurance in Ontario, and it turned out that if you took your car entirely out of service and uh, and put it in storage, that was the 90% discount. So, you know, these these kinds of numbers are, uh, are really deserve to be examined. But in any event, um, we have a law in British Columbia that the proceeds, the profits from ICBC, need to go to the benefit of drivers. That is the law in British Columbia now. That's a law, by the way, that Andrew Wilkins had voted against as he defended the practice of taking money out of ICBC. Just so people know where the two parties stand, uh, they will be seeing a rebate as a result of uh, of the savings from COVID. I I anticipate that the Liberals are going to promise competition in auto insurance and that they would open up basic auto insurance, which right now is a monopoly for ICBC, open that up to full competition so it would require ICBC to compete against private sector insurance companies. I anticipate the Liberals are going to promise that. What do you think of that? I'm sure that won't surprise you. No, it doesn't. And there's a reason why we didn't do it. We looked at everything, Mike, including that model. And we looked at a report the private insurers provided us. It's public. It's available. It's called the Benefits of Competition in the Auto Insurance Market. And on page 35, they tell British Columbians what that will mean for their premiums. And under the full competition scenario, they say that there will be increases of 18% to 35% for everybody under the age of 35, that nobody under the age of 45 will see any rate decrease. And this is their own report. So when they tell us that they're going to increase rates on thousands and thousands of BC drivers in a full competition scenario, we believe them. And so we chose a system on May 1st that will actually reduce rates by 20% on average for all drivers in British okay. Columbia. So this okay. is, this is a, it's a significant difference between the two parties. We know we can lower rates yeah. for people starting May 1st. And the model that they're pursuing, if that's the direction they choose to go, the private insurers are saying they're going to jack rates.
Okay, we just we only have thirty seconds left. But if if ICBC is so great, why not just give people the choice? And then if ICBC is cheaper than private insurance, and people won't bother going with private insurance. Yeah, yeah, but the way ICBC and Manitoba and Saskatchewan can offer the lowest rates in Canada, and we will be able to after May first, is because it has the monopoly. If it doesn't have the monopoly, they're left with drivers that are high risk and can't get insurance in the private market, and that will increase rates for everybody. The private insurers tell us that. Okay, thank you for coming on this morning. You bet, Mike. Let's talk about one of the most popular holidays in all of Canada now, and I'm talking about Halloween. Halloween is huge. It's now the second biggest holiday of the year in terms of consumer spending. Right behind Christmas, of course, who doesn't love going to a Halloween party? But, of course, this year, everything different with the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Bonnie Henry has recently talked about the need for caution around Halloween gatherings. No big Halloween parties this year. Okay, what if you have an Airbnb party? So some people do sometimes just rent an Airbnb, throw a big party. Could people be renting Airbnb suites to throw a Halloween party against the rules? What is Airbnb doing about that? Well, let's find out right now. Alex Dagg is my guest. She's the public policy manager for Airbnb Canada. Alex, it's nice to talk to you again. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Good morning. Good morning to you. Thanks a lot for coming on. I know you guys have put out the kibosh on this, right? So you're not going to allow uh, one-night rentals on Halloween, correct? Yes, we did put the kibosh on. We're trying to, you know, support Dr. Henry and what she's talking about uh, in BC. We understand that Halloween is a great time for people to get together, but just with all of the concerns around the second wave and uptick happening you know, across Canada and the United States, we took, um, you know, a really a pretty unprecedented uh, decision on our part, and we will be uh, prohibiting any one-night reservations anywhere in North America during the Halloween weekend. So we are wow. going ahead and canceling anyone who's already booked a one-night reservation on our platform for Halloween. Okay, Halloween is uh, October 31st, which is a Saturday night. Oh, it was going to be so big before this uh, pandemic hit. So Airbnb will not allow one-night rentals. What if someone books the place for the weekend or two nights? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have thought of that, too. So we are uh, not allowing any one-night reservations for either Friday night or Saturday Saturday oh, night during okay the Halloween weekend, and we are increasing our vigilance and human review of any reservations that are two-night or maybe even three-night during that weekend. So especially from people that are local bookers that look like, you know, could be last minute or they live nearby and they're booking, you know, an entire home. So we'll have additional screening as well, and we will be blocking those reservations as well. So you know, there are plenty of legitimate reasons why people want to book a listing um, on Halloween so they can book one, um, you know, a private room in a home where the host will be present or they can book a hotel room on our platform too. Okay, what so kind of... Okay, that's, that's very interesting, Alex. What kind of screening would you do? So let's say you get a reservation for the Friday night and the Saturday night, two-night reservation, Saturday night is Halloween... Uh, what kind of screening would you do? Would you be contacting the people who rent the place and say, hey, are you guys planning to throw a Halloween party or how are you, how are you going to do that? There are going to be automated messages on our system uh, reminding people about our party ban and about health restrictions so they will get that. We're doing enhanced messaging to our host community 
And we will be looking for those kind of reservations through our systems, which can pull up these, uh, what we call high, you know, more of a higher risk reservation. If it's someone that's booking uh, a listing nearby where they live, that kind of thing. Um, we often go in and just cancel those and say, look, I'm sorry, we're not going to allow you to, to book hmm. this okay. um, reservation, but here is a private home you can book this instead, or here is a hotel room you can book instead. So just enhanced additional screening, enhanced human review of our reservations during this sensitive period. Right. Of course, big indoor parties is one of the big concerns here for the spread of COVID-19 during this pandemic. Has Has Airbnb in Canada experienced any problems in that regard? Like if you guys had uh, places rented out where people have thrown parties against the rules or have you received complaints against people part- about people partying in Airbnb units? Yeah, I mean, look, this we're certainly in unusual times and um, we are taking a number of uh, extra steps to try to, um, you know, make sure and make it clear to people that irresponsible or reckless behavior on our platforms is, is not something we want. We don't want this business. Um, and we're, we've done a number of uh, various things just since the... Um, since the onset of the pandemic to, to really discourage this. Um, you know, just last week in Ontario, we removed 40 party houses and uh, just, you know, said, look, you, you can't be on our platform. You're not recognizing the kind of standards and health concerns that we think is really important to be putting forward. So we'll continue to look at new things that we can do to try to keep people safe during this pandemic. Right. Right. Okay. I've stayed in Airbnb in the past with, with my family on various trips, you know, before the dark times hit here. But uh, in my experience using Airbnb, frequently on the listing, it will say no parties, no events. You can't throw an event. You can't throw a party here. But are some listings on Airbnb different? Do some of them say, like you just talked about a party house? Does that say right in the listing? Yeah, you can rent this place and you're allowed to throw a party here. Yeah, there have been listings um, on our platform that do allow, you know, events like a a larger place might have a small, you know, a wedding shower or something like that. I mean, there's lots of legitimate reasons and appropriate use um, that people sometimes, you know, will allow in their listing depending on, you know, the size, location, all that kind of thing. But um, in the past two weeks, we have banned all of those uh, events globally. So no what wow. that doesn't exist anywhere on our platform. And we, we think it's just something that's really important during this global health crisis that this kind of thing cannot be happening on our platform, and we don't want this. It's just irresponsible during this time. And, you know, once we're through this period of time, you know, it is sometimes appropriate to have small events or small Thanksgiving dinner with your friends or your family, that kind of thing. We look forward to being able to host those kind of stays again at some point in the future. Okay, you mentioned that Airbnb had shut down some party houses in Ontario. What about in British Columbia? Have you shut down any party houses here? Well, we do routinely look at individual houses where we get complaints. We do ask people to contact us using our neighborhood support line if there are issues or concerns in their neighborhood. So we're continually doing that. What we did in Ontario is we did a sweep of the province and just picked out, you know, the ones that we thought, you know, really were just, you know, not really um, honoring the kind of um, 
code that we think is important during COVID. And we are looking at other regions across Canada. We've done a number of these in the U.S. as well. We'll be continuing to move through different areas looking for problem listings. Okay, but you haven't haven't done that yet in B.C.? Not in a a systematic province-wide way like we have in Ontario. Ontario is the first one we've done, but we are looking at other jurisdictions here in Canada too. Right. Okay. What if someone uh, rents out an Airbnb place and they say, oh, no, I'm not going to throw a party. I'm just maybe just doing a business trip or I'm visiting family or something. And then they throw a party anyway. What can you do about that? Like, can neighbors complain and will you guys investigate? Like, will you send someone over to shut the party down? How does that work? Yes, yes. And great question. Um, I mean, sometimes we do have that, right? Someone who misrepresents uh, their purpose and what they're using the listing for and so there's a number of things if the host becomes aware we have a 24-7 crisis support line for our host community where um, we can extract guests if there is you know some kind of problematic behavior going on Um, we also have like I said the 24-7 neighborhood support line so if you're next door to one and you see something that's dangerous or a party happening I mean first of all you should call the police but second of all you should contact us to the neighborhood support line let us know what's happening we need the address and we can take quick measures to um you know deal with uh, those kind of events happening on our happening on our listing and that's something we've had for some time we encourage people to use our system so we know when they're happening thank you for coming on this morning no problem always a pleasure mike Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Baldry's Beat, we call it. Good morning, Keith. Happy Monday. Lots to talk about here. Busy day on the campaign trail yesterday. Promises flying everywhere here. You've got another one, a breaking one here for us for the Liberals coming up. What are they going to promise on the Massey Massey Tunnel? Yeah, well, they're promising not to have a Massey Tunnel. They're going to promise they're going to go back to the bridge idea. Andrew Wilkinson to announce that this morning. Uh, Resurrect the, uh, I think it's a 10-lane bridge. Maybe Maybe it's eight lanes. So the plan now is to build a new tunnel. That's the NDP's right. plan. Yeah. Um, the bridge has already been through the environmental assessment process. Yeah. And that's what well, they actually work. started building it almost. Yeah. They started, they started laying down the, the, the groundwork for yeah. it. And then uh, the NDP halted to go the tunnel right. option. And they're betting. And this is an example of what I'm picking up is the Liberals are shifting to very much a hyper local focused campaign. Yesterday, you saw the promise about. Um, uh, in Surrey to have a referendum whether or not to change the RCMP, uh, and that's that plays directly to the populist politics of Surrey and Surrey alone. Nobody living outside Surrey really much has um, much care about whether the RCMP is in Surrey or not. Yeah. Today, the Richmond announcement, uh, the bridge announcement, is targeted at Richmond and Delta and Surrey, and I, I I think what the Liberals are doing is not so much. A campaign to win the election. I, I think I don't think there's any um, doubt in their minds that that's a really uphill climb. It's to hang on to the riding. They're trying to. They're, have. Tr- they're trying to save the silverware here. They're trying the to house hold. Is, the house is on fire. Yesterday was about saving Marvin Hunt's seat in Surrey oh. Cloverdale. I think today is about saving Jazz Johal's seat in Richmond Queens Row and the other Richmond seats as well. The NDP, with that type of lead in the polls, is starting to eye certain ridings rather hungrily <laughs> that are held by the Liberals, and the Liberals I think are just trying to shore up support. Okay, so do you think most people in those ridings around the Massey Tunnel like the idea of the ten lane bridge that the Liberals promised? I think opinion is split on that on that question. That's so a how, would this, how would this help them keep those ridings then? 
If they say we're going to go back to the bridge you, idea. Because I, I think the bridge can be done quicker than the tunnel. And, okay. and it sort of relieve congestion uh, quicker uh, with that with that project than the, the, the other one. I think there's support for anyone in Richmond and Delta just to do something to get out of that bottleneck and to create more uh, more access. So it's uh, it's interesting. Infrastructure projects are always popular. Yeah. You know, um, build a bridge, build a road. Uh, people people like that. It's a, a form of black talk politics, and it, it's usually effective. That was going to be a massive bridge there oh, yeah. to replace the massive ten lane bridge, be like the biggest bridge in BC, and it was going to be a toll bridge, right? And one of the knocks We're, against it was uh, literally that it would provide, um, it would block out the sky to a development wow. yeah, next huge. to it. Yeah, that's how big it was. It suddenly it would uh, darken the skies in, in neighboring uh, developments. Would it still be a toll bridge? Don't know. Ooh. Don't know. Uh, I can't. I can't imagine Wilkinson promising no, a toll. No, bridge. you always promise a toll no after way. election, not before yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. But again, it'd be interesting to see what other local issues the Liberals seize upon to try again. I think targeted ridings. Uh, I don't think it's big picture stuff anymore. After that uh, promise to cut the sales tax, which was uniform across across the province, I think you're going to see them shrink their focus to local campaigns. Okay, let's talk about one of those other hyper local issues you just mentioned, and that's Wilkinson's promise to hold a local referendum mm. in the city of Surrey on this policing plan. He was on the show this morning, um, and I asked him to respond to Mayor Doug McCallum, who, of course, supports the idea of getting rid of the Mounties, bringing a local police force. That's his idea. Yeah, exactly. And and McCallum is furious over this promise by Wilkinson. He said this is a desperate move by Wilkinson. I got Wilkinson's reaction. Here's what he told me this morning. Well, instead of insulting me and insulting the people of Surrey, why don't we just tell them how much it's going to cost? Pretty straightforward question. Once they know that answer, then they'll be able to vote on it. Okay, well, they have put out a price tag on the on a local police force. It essentially they're, they're claiming it'd be like what eleven was it ten or eleven percent more than what a local mm-hmm. uh, uh, the RCMP costs, but it'd be fewer cops. So I mean, this is the, this is one of the things that people are scratching their head over, and they're saying, "Wait a sec, do we really want to do this? Do we really want to pay more money for a local police force that would have fewer cops on the ground?" Yeah. So a lot of people are saying, hang on a sec, we want to do Sign- over signific- here. There's significant opposition to McCallum's idea in Surrey. That, that's fairly clear. Um, the emotion attached to it seems to have abated a bit from what it was a few months ago, but maybe this is going to resurrect it. But uh, I think Wilkinson, again, they've done their internal polling. They probably think they're on the, on the right side of the angels here, that uh, most people do not want to move away from the RCMP in Surrey. And again, this is about holding their ridings and potentially, I mean, there's, there's nine ridings in Syria. There's nine, and the Liberals got three of them. And so four the NDP of the, got six. Four of those NDP six are pretty strong NDP ridings. I mean, they're, yeah. they're winning by with an excess of 50% of the vote. Two of the ridings are fairly strong liberal ridings in the south part of, of Surrey. Yeah. There's three sort of in the middle, two held by the NDP, Guildford and Panorama and Cloverdale held by the liberals that I think are potentially in play, all won by about 2,300 votes or so, 2,100 votes. So those are swing ridings. They can go either way. Um, liberals clearly gambling. This promise will uh, consolidate their vote in Cloverdale and perhaps... And I stress the word perhaps, pick up a seat in Panorama. Maybe two. Maybe two. Okay. um, So how is that saving the silverware then? Or or if this is a defensive campaign where they're just trying to defend what they've got, almost admitting defeat, I guess if you look at it that way, or is this a brilliant local move to pick potentially keep what they've got, three seats in the city of Surrey, maybe pick up two more? Maybe the whole election turns on it. 
Well, I think they're in trouble in a, a few other places. They're in trouble in Vancouver Falls Creek. They're in trouble in Coquitlam Burke Mountain. They might be in trouble in Boundary Similkameen. Richmond's in play in terms of Richmond uh, Queensboro, and that's what Jazz today's Joe Hall. that's what today's announcement's about is is uh, shoring up support uh, in on Richmond. the Ma- on the Massey Tunnel on the Massey Bridge. Yeah, 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 Massey Bridge. Okay, uh, another interesting promise from the NDP. Meanwhile, uh, David Eby, who is also on the show here this morning, promising rebate checks. For BC drivers, ICBC has saved a lot of money during mm-hmm. this pandemic. They're going to cut you, cut you a check here and give you a rebate. Finally, I mean, we talked, <laughs> we were talking about this for six months now. Now there's an election, in the middle of an election. Now he promises a rebate. What did you think of that? Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, what better time to announce rebate checks in the middle of an election campaign? I mean, it's, it is the proverbial buy your vote. I noticed, uh, contrast to that, uh, our colleague Justin Hunter has a piece in the Globe today about $2 billion in relief being held up because of the election campaign. Yeah, that was a good story. So um, on the one hand, you got a promise to dole out checks at some point. On Six months hand, from now. Yeah. And another, and another, on the other hand, you've got a lot of businesses hurting, waiting for that cash that has been in suspended animation now because of the election process. Because again, um, the documents Justine got show that the, the, this relief program can't be activated until the next government, um, yeah. uh, signs off on it. Well, we're not going to have another government until well after October 24th because the votes aren't going to be counted for probably a month and swearing in and that we could be looking at just before Christmas before we see a new government and that's when those checks will roll. Wow, okay, this is interesting because this is one of those ones where the Liberals had been demanding these rebates saying give us a rebate, other provinces are doing it, ICBC you're saving millions of dollars during this pandemic because fewer people are driving, there's fewer accidents, that money should flow back to drivers so give us a rebate but it's one of those ones where the Liberals are when the NDP say okay we'll give you the rebate Debate, the liberals like oh darn it we didn't really want you to promise to do that because it was this was our turf we were asked we were promising the rebate. well the liberals were pressing for this in the in the last election session jazz joe hall he put a uh, private the, members bill yeah, in on it yeah no they were pressing it now and now EB, i mean smartly is figured out now's the time to start showing relief for people but again it's not going to happen tomorrow yeah, but for six months i know like it's, he's saying they won't give it out until like march or later yeah, I, so, which is why I think it's one of those promises that just uh, goes by very quickly. Okay, okay, here's what. Here's another thing real quick, though. ICBC, do the Liberals, I think this could happen later this week, do the Liberals promise full-out private sector competition with ICBC on basic auto insurance? Right now, that's a monopoly for ICBC. Do the Liberals say, hey, elect us, we'll give you choice in auto insurance? I think there's a good chance that's going to happen because the Liberals really need to change the channel on a lot of issues right now. they got to get the electorate to wake up and start paying attention. I don't think their their sales tax uh, elimination did it. Uh, maybe the Surrey, Surrey RSMP plays well in Surrey, but nowhere else. The Massey Bridge may you know perk up interest in Richmond, but they've got to get the electorate up and talking. And maybe yeah. a, a big bold move like that on ICBC does the trick. Yeah, they might do that. I think they'll promise uh, par- private auto insurance competition. I'm told here. it's going to be a busy week from the Liberals. Yeah, I could, that could come this week. Keith Baldry, six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight is the number to call. 604-280-9898. The number on your cell is star 9898. Bob on the line. Hi, Bob. Hi there. Hi. Um, I just want to comment a little bit on this ICBC fiasco. Uh, it seems to me, my recollection is, is that some time ago, when the government was still sitting, they made a, they passed a law saying they were going to cut a rebate check to everybody, and the check would come out in January. Now it just becomes happier that they say, well, we'll just wait till June and uh, we're going to make this a promise if we get reelected. So, it, okay, you know, let, me, let, me ex- let me explain what's going on. They've, they've promised no fault auto insurance. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so what they've said is we're going to cut all those greedy lawyers out of the mix. And when we get rid of all those greedy lawyers, we're going to save a lot of money. And anyone that, who's already renewed their auto insurance going into next year, guess what? You'll get a rebate check. Mm-hmm. So now they're prom- so they've already promised those rebate checks from no fault. Now they're promising another rebate check. So this would be the money they, they've saved from COVID. From COVID yeah. So now the NDP are promising two rebate checks to drivers. Okay, so that's what, but not until the new year. It's getting pretty complicated. Uh, this is a moving uh, picture here. Uh, yeah. I think, or as you mentioned before the break, I still think the other shoe to drop here is what the Liberals are going to promise on ICBC. ICBC is, is going to become a big political football in this campaign, whether it's rebate checks or moving to a mixed model of private and public. Uh, I think uh, I think the Liberals really, it's a no-brainer for them to go bold on something with ICBC because it's very much something that's up in the air right now. One of the things that Wilkinson told me earlier, the, the Liberal leader on this, was he said, if, if we form government, we will do a review of auto insurance wow. and we'll put everything on the table, including possible privatization of auto insurance. That'll be on the table. You know, that's yeah. pretty thin gruel right now. I, I think you need something bolder. Now, what he might announce is we will require ICBC to compete against mm-hmm. private sector companies. We won't shut them down, but we'll make them compete. Okay. And what Wilkins or what the NDP will say, and EB told me this this morning was, if you do that, the private companies will cream off the lowest risk drivers. Safest drivers, yep. They will, they will ensure the little old ladies driving on Sunday. And the young guys out there who are speeding and distracted driving the riskiest drivers, they will they will be stuck with ICBC. ICBC will be the insurer of last resort. That's basically how that debate is going to wash yeah, out. Yeah, and the private private side will argue you can pass a law reco- setting uh, caps and percentages of of what how much you you can actually insure in various age groups and such and and risk. So. But again, if that opens the debate, of opens the conversation, that plays to the Liberals' advantage. That could be coming. That could be coming here in this campaign. It could be coming this week. Mark on the open line. Hi, Mark. Uh, good morning, guys. Hi. Uh, ICBC and David Eby, I'd love to have competition when he says, trust us, we're the cheapest thing, anything else is going to cost money is like saying, if we have one grocery store and that's the only place you can shop, trust us that you're getting the best deal. Yeah, thank I, you for that. I don't you know, believe it for a second. Thanks for that. Well, that's what the liberals are counting on. People are the liberals would say there's a lot of people out there who don't like ICBC. ICBC and maybe take I, advantage. ICBC was created by the NDP in the 1970s. It's one of their crown jewels, which is one reason why I don't think you're going to see the NDP move much in terms of changing ICBC. But yeah, ICBC. ICBC has has become a different ICBC than it was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. The insurance industry has been transformed, particularly auto insurance, because of the cost it it, it incurs to uh, fix vehicles. I mean, it costs a lot more to fix a, a bumper now for some reason than it did. So all the uh, technology is because it's got a camera in it now. Yeah, the camera, the electri- electronics. Uh, this yeah. is much more expensive. There's more. There's more claims. There's more crashes. There's more dis- right. uh, distracted driving crashes more uh, fender benders and it's a it's a different thing to price right now than it was even 10 years ago okay dan on the open line hi dan morning hi so a couple of things the ndp promised prior to the last election a 400 dollars per year rent rebate to tenants yes never seen that there's a promise mm-hmm. not kept the other thing they were going to have the green partnership there's a promise they're going to stick with them i think a medical doctor perhaps being in charge of the COVID-19 might be a bit, a bit better than, you know, Horgan's gang. I mean, we're getting him for virtually free. We couldn't hire the guy, you know, 
okay. to do this job. Okay, well, we, thanks. Uh, well, Wilkinson's medical doctor, that's what he's referring to there. Yeah, but that's I think that's immaterial given that the person in charge of our, our strategy is a medical doctor, Dr. Bonnie Henry. And you're not going to see any politician step in and, and say, I'm going to overrule you, even though, uh, as Dr. Bonnie Henry pointed out last week, uh, the next government, whoever it is, cannot overrule her. Her public orders stand, and they're beyond the the uh, approval or disapproval of a premier or a cabinet. That's not going to change, no matter who wins. Okay, what about that rental rebate? What happened to that? Remember Whatever when Morgan happened promised to that, that four hundred bucks a year? Yeah, uh, I never thought that was going to materialize. And I think <laughs> in this pandemic, I mean, there have been you can argue there's aid programs right now that sort of exceed that four hundred dollars a year. I mean, there's a lot of people getting money from the government right now. That wasn't even um, conceivable before the pandemic. I remember talking to Horgan about that renter rebate when he promised it. And I said, what happens if you got a place where, you know, two or three people, young students are living together and they're sharing a place. They're all renting the same yeah. place. Do they all get, get 400 bucks, 400 bucks each? And he was like, oh, uh, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll figure that out later. I think it was one of those promises that was attached to the affordability argument uh, that really wasn't well thought out. And it was very clear in her first budget, Carol James wasn't going there. Okay, let's go squeeze in one more. Terry on the open line. Hey, Terry. Hi, Mike. Um, I just wanted to, you guys don't seem to be focusing on the reason why he called the election. He deems a four-year mandate to give us a whole bunch of bad news. Personal income tax is going up. PST is going up. That's why he needs four years, because then people will forget by the next time it comes around. Okay, thirty. We got thirty seconds, Keith. I, I think he called the election because he thinks he can win it, and I think he he saw the window now of being much more positive and uh, more advantageous than it would be a year from now or two years from now. Well, the caller is also right to an extent that tougher times are coming there potentially are in the new le- new year. He said, "Let's go now before it gets worse." Before it gets worse. I mean, we're going to have some some a lot more businesses are going to close in the year ahead, and uh, there's going to be a lot more grief. We're going to be in this pandemic for quite a while. The schools are an ongoing concern is going to get uh, more apprehension there so it's going to get worse before it gets better and that's why he went now thanks keith talk to you tomorrow talk american politics here a little bit now we heard a lot of conflicting reports on the weekend about president donald trump's health and his covid19 diagnosis over the weekend is he taking experimental treatments is he recovering is he healthy enough to continue the election campaign so much to decipher we got our show contributor john jang now with more Good morning, Mike. U.S. President Donald Trump was taken to a military hospital late last week, and over the weekend, we heard conflicting reports regarding the status of his illness. So I went out and asked Dr. Gerald Evans, the head of Queen's University's Infectious Diseases Divisions, if the treatment that we heard President Trump was undertaking actually matched the severity of the illness that was being told to the public. Yeah, well, it's a very good question. I mean, the the essential problem we're dealing with is we're being told he has a, a mild uh, case of COVID-19, uh, but the treatment he's been receiving, and in particular the use of dexamethasone, uh, is actually reserved for people who have a more uh, serious form of infection uh, in which uh, there are ongoing problems related to their ability to uh, exchange gases, and we're mostly interested in oxygen levels, etc., uh, because that is actually not given to people who have mild to moderate disease because of the concern that that particular drug, which is a steroid, might actually impair the response um, uh, to clearing the virus. 
the other drugs, uh, one of them is remdesivir. It is it can be given to people earlier in the course of the disease, although we still haven't defined when it should be given, and is typically being sort of used in people where there's a concern that they're going to become more serious. The other one is an experimental therapy. We have no idea when and where it should be used. Theoretically, it should be used early in disease, but uh, I think the dexamethasone is the particularly worrisome one because it really shouldn't be given to someone unless the physician or the team of physicians is concerned that the patient is doing worse. Would you ever prescribe dethamexidone in the case of a preventative measure in the sense that you don't want things to get worse or is it preliminary use or primarily part of me used as a responsive measure? Yeah, it's really a responsive measure. Uh, steroids in general tend to impair the immune response, particularly a very potent one like dexamethasone. And so it's never given as a, as a preventive measure. It would only be given and is only recommended at the moment uh, for us as physicians to give to someone in which uh, their um, uh, illness course is getting worse and they're having problems with maintaining oxygenation and or even worse that they might need to go on to a ventilator. So then does this kind of strike you as uh, VIP syndrome? something I read about over the weekend, a very popular term that sort of popped up in the sense that, you know, this is still the leader of the free world, the president of the United States. So is this a case of medical staff just taking extra precautions with who he is as a human being? Or is this sort of an illusion that maybe, you know, he is actually a lot sicker than what we've been told so far in the public? Well, I have no doubt that part of it is going to be related to VIP syndrome. Uh, in essence, uh, sort of projecting this idea that the team is pulling out all the stops to, you know, um, uh, manage and treat the illness as much as possible. Um, but having said that, it's really hard to put into context because we're getting so little information, so little information, I would say, that's uh, believably accurate that we can determine where he is in the course of the illness. And if that's the case, and in fact, um, you know, some of the measures that are being put into place are very appropriate or perhaps inappropriate, then that's really important to know because um, we, we do know that unfortunately uh, this, uh, this particular individual and their administration have really pushed the idea that some drugs are miracle cures, which they clearly are not. Uh, and so it's, I think we're into the sphere of believability, which makes it really challenging and why you and I are, are chatting about this today. For anyone receiving a dose of dexamethasone, does it make sense for them to do what the president did over the weekend, uh, leaving the facility for a temporary basis, getting into his presidential vehicle to acknowledge supporters outside? Uh, like, we understand that the presidential vehicle is very safe and secure, but it's really the, you know, uh, his staff inside the vehicle that remain at risk. Absolutely. I mean, if I had been asked for my advice, I would have clearly recommended no. If I've given dexamethasone to someone with a COVID-19 infection, they should not be out of the hospital environs, and they certainly should not be in an enclosed, uh, hermetically sealed space, which is what the presidential vehicles are, because what's happened is that anyone in that vehicle is at risk. Even if they're wearing a mask, that's an enclosed environment. If uh, they were in there for more than 15 or 20 minutes with a uh, with a, an individual who is infected, uh, then even a mask is unlikely to protect them and it could result in, in transmission to others. So I think it was unwise for the person in particular to go out because they're ill. And I think, secondly, it was unwise because it posed a risk and, and potentially may have transmitted infection to others that were in that same vehicle. And finally, Dr. Evans, you know, obviously the United States is still very much in the middle of a presidential election process. 
if you were prescribing dexamethasone or any of those drugs to uh, any particular patient, would you say that it would maybe impact their ability to go out and, and be a part of the campaign? We know that, you know, there's still several debates still scheduled to take place, and uh, it does take a big physical and mental toll on someone. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we've known uh, for years, because we use steroids to treat a whole host of disorders, is that steroids can uh, affect the psyche. There is a thing referred to as steroid psychosis, which is an adverse effect of giving high doses of steroids, uh, which can impair thinking and create problems with delirium and confusion. So, you know, there are always risks when one is using medications that may be useful to treat something that you may see side effects. And and in particular, uh, as you're sort of pointing out in the midst of a a large campaign and a very high stakes campaign, uh, that may very well um, interfere with the, the individual's thinking. And of course, as I said, since it can impair the immune system, it may result in a prolongation of viral shedding. And that viral shedding could adversely affect people around them by allowing transmission to occur from that individual to them. More drama in Washington. We've got another positive COVID-19 case at the Trump White House. Let's check in with Reggie Cicchini now Washington producer and correspondent for Global National. Reggie, thanks a lot for taking the time. Good morning. Okay, we got Trump's press secretary has tested positive near now. What's the latest? Yeah, this is uh, opening more questions and raising more concern about the spread of COVID-19 throughout uh, the White House complex. Uh, and this comes after Kayleigh McEnany says that she tested negative several days last week and then finally tested positive this morning. That said, she did hold a maskless gaggle on the White House driveway on Sunday. She did hold that full court press briefing uh, last week after the debate. And it's unclear when she would have actually contracted this or if she was just not uh, testing uh, positive on a White House testing system that has really been called into question. Okay, yeah, Kaylee, Kaylee McEnany, very well known as the, the press secretary for the president. She has tweeted out she's got no symptoms uh, so far, but she is the latest to test positive here. This is the 11th person close to President Trump to have tested positive for the virus. Meanwhile, Reggie, what's going on with Trump? Well, we don't actually know what's going on with the president right now. Uh, we are still standing out front of Walter Reed Medical Center uh, in Bethesda, Maryland. There is still a steady stream of security officials that are driving up and down the street here and a growing number of uh, the president's supporters that are gathered out front. Cars continue to drive by honking, but we don't actually know what's going on inside that building. President Trump's phys uh, physicians have not come forward today. There's been no update from the White House staff on the condition of the president. And there was talk that the president could potentially be released today back to the White House. That's something that was said to be coming tonight. But again, it's facing pushback from the external medical community saying that it would be inappropriate to take a COVID positive patient and put them back into a general public setting. Oh, my goodness. OK, I'm sure Trump would love to get back to the White House and try and show the world and the American voters that he's uh, still back in charge and he's going to beat this beat this virus. Do you think what's the chances of that? Because his doctors keep saying he's improving, right? Well, his doctors are saying that he's improving, but they also keep using the terms, quote, not out of the woods. And that's leading to that lack of transparency that's coming from the messaging inside this medical department right now uh, when it comes to the health the condition, the severity of the symptoms that the President of the United States is feeling after contracting COVID-19 late last week. But to add to that, there are still conflicting reports as to when President Trump may have actually contracted this disease. The White House is being cagey on when they'll say the President's last negative test was, only mm. saying when his most recent positive test was. 
Okay, speaking to Global National Correspondent in Washington, Reggie Cicchini here with the latest from the Trump White House. Reggie, let me play this here. It's part of a video message uh, from the president. He put this out on Twitter on Saturday. So here is Trump speaking on the weekend here. I want to begin by thanking all of the incredible medical professionals, the doctors, the nurses, everybody at Walter Reed Medical Center. I think it's the finest in the world for the incredible job they've been doing. Uh, I came here, wasn't feeling so well. I feel much better now. We're working hard to get me all the way back. I have to be back because we still have to make America great again. We've done an awfully good job of that. Okay, that's the Trump on the weekend. Reggie's tweeting up a storm again today as well. So it sounds like Trump is just itching to get back, maybe get back on the campaign trail, at least get back to work. But is there a, maybe a fight with his doctors over that? Well, it's unclear what the actual, and or at least I should say, it's unclear who is trying to pull the strings here when it comes to the messaging. The physician's team has said that the president is still not out of the woods. Yeah, you have the president actively working behind the scenes trying to control the message to ensure that he can, you know, reassure the American public that he's still uh, in charge. That's why we're seeing these pictures released. That's why we're seeing these videos released uh, on Twitter. It's worth noting this kind of tweet storm that the president went into this morning with all capitals, about 15 or 17 of those tweets. There are reports from people close to the president that one of his aides uh, on social media, Dan Scavino, has tested negative and may have been the one who was actually pushing all of those tweets out. Because again, some of the style was different than what we're used to seeing with the president. But again, this is a really kind of untested time for the president, and he is simply doing what he can to make sure that he still is the face of the United States. Right. Right. Speaking of Reggie Cicchini, he is outside the hospital where Trump is right now, and uh, everyone on high alert, will Trump be released from hospital today? Could he return to the White House? What do you think is kind of the best case scenario for Trump here and the Republicans? Like, what are your sources telling you? Are they saying that they would hope that Trump would be released? And I don't know, is there some way, somehow, he can turn this thing into a positive and try to show American voters, look, I beat this thing, it's not that bad, and now I'm going to go back and fight for you? Well, two things on that. There's mixed reaction to the president's release from the hospital today, only because it will likely create much more media uh, um, uh, kind of attraction to the story. And they've worked for the last seven months to make sure that COVID is out of the picture, particularly when they are on the campaign. When we're talking about the campaign, Trump surrogates have already been released, especially to Fox News, where they're now spinning this to say that President Trump is now the person to take the lead on COVID-19 because he has been personally affected by it. And they're saying that Joe Biden has not been affected by it. Therefore, he doesn't know what he's talking about. This is the spin for a person who has pushed back on COVID for seven months. Oh, man, what a wild situation. Okay, final final question for you, Reggie. What about the uh, vice presidential debate between Kamala Harris and Mike Pence? Is that still a go? That is still a go. There is a concerted effort to ensure that everybody inside the auditorium is going to be wearing masks and that additional safety protocols are put in place. Uh, Because, look, if something does happen to President Trump, Mike Pence is going to be second in line. He continues to test negative. They're releasing that information each and every day. But as we know right now, that debate is going forward next week, this week, rather. And we still haven't been told whether or not next week's presidential debate will be canceled. Okay, Reggie, another busy day for you. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's continue with BC's best election coverage here now. Major election promises from all the main political parties. So let's assemble our panel right now. On the line, I got Bill Thielman for the NDP. He's a West Star Communications president. Good morning, Bill. 
Morning, Mike. Thanks for doing this again. Caroline Elliott's also on the line. She's a former advisor to the B.C. Liberal Party. Pleased to welcome her back. Caroline, thanks for doing it. Happy to do it. And Yanina Campbell is the executive director of the B.C. Green Party. Yanina, nice to talk to you again. Hi, good morning. Okay, guys, let's talk about what's going on in the city of Surrey here and, and this interesting promise from Andrew Wilkinson, the Liberal leader here, to promise a referendum in the city of Surrey on the plan to get rid of the RCMP and go with the local police force. Wilkinson was on the show this morning. I asked him about uh, Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum, who is furious over this. Of course, he uh, supports getting rid of the Mounties and going to a local police force. He doesn't like this referendum promise from Wilkinson one bit. So I asked Wilkinson, how does he respond to the mayor here's what he told me well instead of insulting me and insulting the people of surrey why don't we just tell them how much it's going to cost pretty straightforward question once they know that answer then they'll be able to vote on it okay well there have been some cost estimates out there it would be more expensive to go with a local police force and that's one of the reasons a lot of people are maybe having a rethink on this one let's go to carolyn elliott now from the from the liberals carolyn what do you why this promise now a referendum on policing in surrey well, I think, uh, I mean, McCallum, first of all, I mean, he's not exactly known for his, his consultative approach. And, and that's exactly what the BC Liberals are proposing to do. Uh, they're saying a lot has changed. I mean, a lot has changed since the last Surrey election when this was a, when this was a big issue. And, and particularly in terms of the cost of a, of a police force, the possibility of fewer officers. Uh, and, and, and the BC Liberals are being quite clear. They're not trying to pick sides. They're not trying to say uh, one way is better than the other. But they're certainly saying that people deserve a say uh, once all that information's on the table. Okay, Bill Thielman for the NDP, what do you think? Well, Mike, as you know, I work with the National Police Federation as one of my clients, and I don't speak for them, but uh, their position has been since February that there should be a referendum, and about 70% of Surrey residents that they've polled have said so. Uh, the NDP found itself in kind of a, a, a tight spot there because uh, the entire council voted in favor, but now it's completely split. There's only a one-vote majority in favor of the, the Surrey Police um, Service situation. So uh, they've, they've kind of said, nope, not going to get into it. Uh, I, I think that the mayor fighting with Wilkinson is something I wasn't expecting, but, um, you know, this is politics, and politics makes for strange bedfellows. Okay, so you think a referendum is a, a good idea, then? I, I, I think there should be, generally speaking, I think there should, we should have more referendums. As you know, I've been involved in four successful ones, and I think that there should be, it should be easier for people to hold referendums if they want one, and I think government shouldn't be afraid of them, generally. Well, but on this one, they don't want to have a fight with Surrey Council. Now, you're supposed to be my NDP guy, though, and the NDP are against this referendum. And they are, and I understand why. Their, their position is, is pretty clear. They've said, look, you know, the council voted in favor. Uh, they're allowed to make decisions in cities over 5,000 people. They can make their own decisions on policing. I mean, it, it is straightforward. It doesn't mean you can't have a referendum, but it's certainly yeah. their position is clear. Okay, I, I know you're in a tough spot. because one of your, one yeah, of your You're cl- putting me in a tougher one, man. I know. It's one of your <laughs> clients there is the, is the union that's trying to unionize the RCMP, so I, and they want to stay in Surrey, obviously. Uh, let me go to Yanina Campbell. Yanina, where, do the Green Party, uh, where does the Green Party stand? in this issue hello yanina did we lose her sorry i actually oh. sorry i pressed the mute button by accident oh, okay. Okay, there you go. Where, where does the green <laughs> I, party stand I in this answer. issue in surrey yeah i mean i, I think we're we we, we acknowledge and we, we can see that there's obviously issues like uh, around the consultation or the lack of that was taken the transparencies of whether people really understood what's going on but we really see this as a way that you should be going in and working with communities that higher level government levels of government shouldn't really impose solutions. So, um, 
you know, obviously there's uh, some frustrations there in the community. I, I find it interesting that it's coming up now with the Liberals, it, you know, given the fact that Surrey has got a lot of swing ridings there that the Liberals are probably going after to take from the NDP and the NDP to defend. So it, the timing of it is a little, for myself personally, looking at that, it, looks, it reminds me of the no bridge tolls in the last election. So, yeah. But I really do think it's working with the community as best. Okay, Caroline, what do you think about the, the speaking of the timing on this, I heard one one pundit saying that maybe this looks a little desperate by Wilkinson now. This is a hyper-local issue in the city of Surrey. The Liberals have got three seats there out of nine. Uh, maybe they're in the kind of save the silverware mode, the house is on fire, and they're just trying to keep the seats that they've got with a promise like this, or... Could the Liberals, is this a promise you think the Liberals could turn around into a winner in Surrey, maybe pick up some seats? Well, it's funny because every time the BC Liberals come out with an idea that's a really good one, a bold one, one that is really resonating with the public, uh, people cry out that it's a desperate measure. And we saw that with the PST where there's a lot of uh, really public popular support for that initiative as well. And that was called desperate. So uh, I think what it really means is the NDP are saying, oh, shoot. Uh, this might actually, you know, turn some votes. And, and I'm not, I don't think that that's necessarily what's driving this. I think that there has been a bit of an abdication on the part of the NDP around this issue. They're saying, you know, we don't have a role in this local policing. Um, but at the same time, you know, the Solicitor General's signature is on, on the, the appointments that they're making in terms of the policing and other things. There's absolutely uh, a provincial role there. And I yeah. think, because so much has changed uh, in terms of, uh, of the cost and the number of police on the ground and things, I think it's absolutely necessary to give uh, the public a, a say in that. I grew up in Surrey. I know that crime is a huge uh, concern for a lot of people living there still, and, and I think it's the right move for the BC Liberals. Okay, I think it's an interesting move by Wilkinson and could be a bit of a game changer in some of these very closely contested Surrey seats. So we continue to watch that one very closely. Guys, let's talk about another big issue here on the campaign trail, and that is the NDP promising a rebate to BC drivers from ICBC. ICBC has saved a lot of money during this pandemic. Fewer drivers on the road, fewer accidents on our highways, so they're saving money. you got David Eby now. Uh, saying we'll give some of that money back in a rebate to BC drivers. Bill Thielman, walk me through this. What's the, what's the thinking on this? Sure, Mike. I mean, I think this is excellent news because, uh, first of all, there's been less driving. I think at one point I hadn't filled up my car for probably a month during the beginning of the pandemic. I hadn't been driving anywhere because I don't go to meetings or anything. I go out or, or anything. So I think that, that there should be savings. And then, of course, it comes on top of the moving to no-fault insurance or a form of no-fault, which will uh, reduce the cost by about $400 for the average driver. So it's good news. Uh, and, you know, the Liberals took $1.2 billion out of the kitty of, of ICBC so they could balance the books and spend it on other things. Uh, they they just you know robbed it blind, and that's why EB called it a, a financial dumpster fire. And and um, the NDP were left to fix it, and they're doing it. Caroline, it's funny because I didn't hear the word desperate come out of Bill's mouth there. But certainly, when you're talking about handing money back to, to voters, uh, you know, right in the middle of an election campaign, that's what it sounds like. Uh, if I hadn't just renounced the use of the word, I may use it myself. But um, uh, definitely, I think uh, it is a, a strategic on the part of the NDP. Nobody likes the sound of getting more uh, money in their pocket than voters, especially during this time when when uh, when people are, are really trying to hold on to their jobs and things in light of COVID. And, and I think the best way to do that, honestly, we've seen and we talked about this last week, is that, is that PST elimination that the BC Liberals announced and then they're the cutting it by more than half in the second year. You're talking about significant money back in people's pockets, $1,700 for an average family. I think that's going to go the, the longest way in terms of... Uh, 
savings for people, whether or not their drivers, the PSC will apply. And I think that that's a better approach at this point. Okay, let me just, before we go to a break, let me go to Yanina Campbell, Executive Director of the Green Party. Yanina, let me ask you about an issue that, Sonia, first to note, the leader of the Greens has made a priority here, and that's on long-term care homes in her province, and the Greens saying they would phase out uh, for-profit homes. How would that work? Yeah, I think it's going to have to um, happen over time, but looking at uh, making sure that uh, the issues that existed before the pandemic don't continue to exist after. And a a large part of that is because the the money that is going into subsidizing the private sector, um, the reports are coming back from the um, seniors advocates showing that they're not getting as many direct hours of care. So we really need to be moving towards a a non-profit model of care to ensure the seniors get the best quality of care. Continue talking about the BC election campaign. We've got our panelists assembled. Let's talk about another issue that's breaking today, and that is the Liberals promising to resurrect the plan for a 12-lane bridge to replace the clogged Massey Tunnel. Don't forget that the NDP have said they would replace the tunnel with a new tunnel, an expanded tunnel. The Liberals saying, no, let's go back to the original plan, a 12-lane bridge to replace that tunnel. Here's Andrew Wilkinson, the Liberal leader, talking about that this morning. The last uh, time this project was reviewed, it went through 13,000 pages of consultation and a full environmental assessment. The renewed project will operate within those terms, so there's no need to go through the lengthy process of assessment and consultation. It'll be a project that has already been approved. Tillman for the NDP, a lot of people wasting their lives in traffic jams at that Massey Tunnel bottleneck. Uh, a lot of people were looking forward to that bridge. Some not. It was a controversial project. But your thoughts on the Liberals resurrecting it here now, saying, let's build that bridge? Well, at risk of offending Caroline, this is desperate yet again. Uh, every <laughs> single mayor in the entire Metro Vancouver region, except for the mayor of Delta, said this is a terrible idea. When Christy Clark proposed it way back when, uh, seven years ago, I think in 2013, off the back of an envelope. And it is an enormous footprint on that area. It's, again, just a way oversized. And so the NDP said, no, we're not going to do it. We're going to do a bridge. It'll be a, a sounder, better, more environmentally friendly a situation. The, N- the NDP said, We'll do a tunnel. A tunnel, I mean, sorry, not a bridge. Uh, And uh, a tunnel. And uh, that makes much more sense. And there's still some, you know, the Massey Bridge may still be a backup or used for transit or other things, the existing bridge or a tunnel. And so I think that it makes much more sense. And I think to propose a, a, you know, an absolutely massive bridge again, when everybody, every mayor said, no, don't do it, don't do it, they they were going to do it anyway. Okay, Caroline Elliott for the Liberals. The original plan was for a toll bridge. Would this new bridge the Liberals are talking about, they want to build this bridge again after all, would it have a toll on it or would it be toll free? Uh, I haven't seen any information about it it being funded by toll, so I would assume that it's toll free, but don't hold me to that. Um, But just to clarify one thing, it's not 12 lanes. I believe they announced a 10-lane bridge today. Uh, And and don't forget, the BC Liberals, I mean, they had preliminary work underway for a bridge to be completed in 2020. So that would be almost finished right now. And all those drivers uh, who are stuck in traffic every single day would just be, uh, you know, a few years out from from a complete bridge. And what the NDP did is they cancelled it with no solution in place. They've had three years of, of studies upon studies. Uh, they've come up with a, with, a, with a tunnel, which, you know, we don't even, ha- I'm not sure we even have a start or end date on that at this point. Uh, the BC Liberals are saying, let's get this new 10-lane bridge built uh, immediately. We've already got that consultation done. We've already got that environmental assessment done. Uh, you know, the NDP said that the bridge was wrong, but don't forget, you know, they said the same thing about the Portman Bridge, and now, you know, they can't move to remove tolls from it fast enough. 
So I think it's a little rich to hear the NDP saying that uh, we shouldn't be building a bridge or that this is wrongheaded when we would have had a bridge almost in place uh, as we speak and those drivers would be okay. getting relief uh, right okay. away. Very local issue affecting a, a few key ridings there, but Yanina Campbell for the Green Party, any thoughts on this one? Yeah, well, we had uh, taken the position in the past uh, to support the review only to make sure that we were looking at uh, addressing kind of the, the approach that the mayor's plan called for. I mean, this is an example where you're supposed to be working as a provincial government with your local governments to have sustainable transit and transportation infrastructure in place. Um, so, I mean, I used to commute to Richmond down um, where I, when I taught in uh, an elementary school down there. And I got to tell you, like the bottleneck on the other side of that tunnel is significant. So to add congestion with a bridge uh, without really understanding the broader implications of the, the route uh, is really, you know, just going to push those problems down the road into Richmond. But uh, really, it's got to be working with the mayor's council to really um, implement those plans for regional transportation routes to move everything right. around the, the area, not just that region, that one region. Yonina, let me ask you a general question about this campaign so far. The This campaign started with the Green Party uh, basically way behind in uh, nominating candidates. We've got the leaders televised debate coming up next week. Big opportunity for the new leader of the Green Party, Sonia First to know. Do you guys got some catching up to do here? And do you think that debate next week is crucial? Oh, it's it's a it's an absolute opportunity for uh, British Columbians to get to know Sonia and, and the vision that Sonia is putting forward for uh, BC. I think it's also a really good opportunity for us to talk about uh, what's coming out around the 1.5 billion dollars in spending that the end, that the Premier and the NDP promised when they. Uh, we passed that in the legislature that, you know, the businesses were going to get the, the money they needed to stay afloat. And now we're seeing that that yes. money doesn't seem to be flying or going out to businesses, in particular in tourism, that need that money. So that's going to be a great opportunity for her to say, look, John Horgan said he had your back. And now now does he like and he called this unnecessary election. And here we are. We've got candidates up and running in 74 ridings, so um, it's been a busy two weeks, but we're okay, hitting me, the ground running. Let me get response from Bill Thielman for the NDP on that one. This is a story that broke today in the, in the Globe and Mail, that some of that relief spending has been held up because of this election call. Bill, how do you respond to that? Well, that's, if that's the case, that's unfortunate. I, I haven't seen all the details on that, and I do know some of the money has gone out. A lot of money has gone out, obviously, and some more is coming out. But in terms of the debate, Mike, I'm looking forward to Sonia Fursino's answer on why Andrew Weaver, the former Green Party leader who broke through for them last election, is supporting John Horgan to continue as premier. I think that's, that's going to be the stumper for starters. Well, Yanina, what do you say to that? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the Andrew Weaver has said that John Horgan as premier would be great. It doesn't mean that he was supporting a, a majority government. And it's interesting because the one thing that the NDP supports, which is fracking and LNG, are the, th- the very things that Andrew ran um, in, in to, to eliminate. So it's, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's an interesting position that uh, Andrew Weaver has taken. I'm not sure I, I understand it, but uh, yeah. It's uh, okay. certainly not what the party stands for. C- Caroline Elliott for the Liberals, I'll give you the, the last word here. We just got 30 seconds, but we, he- we are hearing that report this morning that some re- COVID relief uh, money has been held up by this election call. Your thoughts on that? 30 seconds. 
Well, it's outrageous. Uh, the NDP said that the funding was going out the door as quickly as possible, but now we've found out that the funds are frozen. They're not going to be coming out until after uh, John Horgan's completely unnecessary election that he put in writing that he would not have. Uh, and now okay. uh, families, businesses are waiting to get that funding, whereas the BC Liberals are saying, look, let's let's uh, not only get that okay. money money flowing, but let's get that new bridge built now. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's return to a story that we covered on Friday's show, and that's this brand new report out on dangerous driving in Canada. And there's some shocking findings in this report. It says 63% of Canadians admit to some form of dangerous driving in the past. Now, you got to break down the numbers a little bit. The most common offense reported by people who participated in this survey eating behind the wheel 49 percent of drivers saying yeah i've done that eating behind the wheel come on who hasn't snarfed down a big mac while they're driving but i guess that's technically dangerous driving if you take a look at the law in british columbia distracted driving could include eating behind the wheel Liable to a $363 fine. I'm not sure if one has ever been handed out for eating. Some of the other more common infractions on this report, speeding. 33% of Canadians admit, yeah, speeding, I've done it. Forgetting to signal. Driving while you're tired or sleepy behind the wheel. Distracted driving like texting, 14%. Running a red light, 9% admit to that. And it goes down from there. It's just more serious infractions that fewer people are coughing up. But that's a lot of people admitting to some dangerous driving habits. Let's check in with Steve Wallace on this now, owner of Wallace Driving School. How are you doing, Steve? Hey, how are you, Mike? I'm doing great. What do you think of these findings that a lot of Canadians are saying, yeah, I've done some bad things while I'm driving? Your thoughts? Well, there are things that are much more uh, dangerous. They found that uh, drowsy driving is akin to driving while drunk, and the crash rate and the manner of um, the uh, death rate and so on is about the same for those. And so there are a whole host of things that, you know, distract people. I mean, I I watched a guy last year. He was uh, driving with his knees and, and uh, eating a had an ice cream cone and a and a drink in his hand. Um, there are all sorts of things that are that are you know classified as distracted driving and articulable offense. There's uh, others that are much much worse. Uh, and uh, I know in the report it said that it, were, it was worse in, in Manitoba and Saskatchewan and you know Alberta and so on. And those are the prairie provinces where it's pretty boring driving. You just get on a road and go straight. They always tell the joke about the guy who you know made it from Regina to Saskatoon with his club on because uh, he didn't have to make any turns on the prairies. Uh, but the, the key thing there is that some of these things are much much worse. Others are not as bad, but to the public they are all ticketable offenses. Okay, do you think, in your experience as a veteran driving instructor, where are the trend lines on this? Do you think people are getting better or worse as drivers overall, let's say in B.C.? Oh, they're getting worse. They're getting worse by far for for a couple of reasons. Not the ones you mentioned, but the cars now have so many functions that people have to be aware of. And so even the the lane departure of uh, noise or the 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 thing that uh, crew, uh, you know appears on the screen that you're not quite in your lane that can distract people as well so there's a lot of technology that's actually heaped upon the kind of stuff that's going on when i was in the us i rented this 
vehicle. Uh, there were six of us who were on a golf trip, so we went down there. And we had six sets of golf clubs in the back, and it was a big, a fairly large vehicle. And so we went through some of these construction sites. And the whole time that we were in a construction site, because of those, you know, the orange cones that they have, were close to the vehicle. It was sounding the alarm that the lane departure uh, mechanism was telling me, hey, watch out, you're going to crash. Oh, okay. All right. How about running a red light? This report found that not an insignificant number of people have, have, will admit to doing that. That's dangerous. I mean, a lot of the worst accidents occur right in an intersection, right? Well, the problem that happens there is a lot of people will be out late at night, early in the morning, and there's no one around, and a lot of them will admit to, yeah, I just went through the light. I was going to be late for, for work or whatever. But be very, very careful. There's a patented life-threatening situation when the people are moving through the intersection everyone else stops on a multi-lane road and the person in the far right lane doesn't and as such what happens is the pedestrians are at risk and on top of that if they're in the far left lane of a multi-lane road and they're running that light then you can look to the right and see perhaps that there's a lane jumper heading out early and as such, if you've got a semi-trailer or whatever that blocks your view, you're going to take it on the side impact, and that's head-on, and, and the side impact crashes yeah. are, uh, T-bone crashes are the most deadly. Deadly, for sure. What about this uh, poll, this survey, at ranked drivers by province? And it was interesting, Steve, you briefly referenced this, that the top worst, the worst drivers, according to this survey, were in, like, the prairie provinces, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Alberta, that these are ranked as the worst drivers, and British Columbia faring much better, at least in this report, as among the better drivers, at least when it comes to people admitting uh, to poor driving habits. Does that jive with your, your understanding of, of driving habits across the country? Do you think BC, British Columbia drivers are better uh, than other drivers in the country? Well, they're much better as far as this is concerned for reasons. This, the statistics mirror what happens in the Midwest as well. I mean, you get a lot of people that are bored, and they're driving across the prairies. There's not much going on. So, you know, uh, snacking on a, on a Big Mac or something like that or doing other things while you're in the car uh, seems natural for reasons of boredom. And you take the terrain in British Columbia. One of the reasons why British Columbia's drivers are, are perhaps um, more skillful uh, yeah. and, and, and to a degree more safe than other, other provinces is that you have a terrain that is quite amazing uh, for right. our country. The other thing is, Ontario and Quebec, you have sheer volumes of, uh, of, of traffic, and as such, the number of vehicles on the road really matter to that, uh, to that extent. And then if you go through some of the maritime provinces, there's a lot of uh, odd things that happen there. You really have to be aware of one-lane bridges and covered bridges okay. and, and those other things that really jump, in, jump out at you. Hans on the open line. Hi, Hans. How are you? I'm good. Go ahead. A um, couple things I've noticed. I'm, as, as I'm maybe now 50-plus, sometimes I'm doing stuff that I would have slapped myself in the head for before. So that's maybe pay more attention as you get older. The other thing I've noticed is that there's more young female drivers that are really aggressive now than, uh, than there used to be, I think. Okay, I'm glad you brought that up because this poll found that women drivers are safer than men drivers. Uh, Steve, I'm not sure you want to touch this one with a 10-foot pole, but go oh, ahead. I'll dive in. The okay. God hates a coward. Uh, the women drivers are seen to be 
22 times safer if you just simply take raw stats, but they are three to four times safer and have three to four times fewer crashes than male drivers on average once they rationalize the figures with uh, kilometers driven and those kinds of things. So that still is a fact. Um, it's getting worse, though, as women take a greater role as far as earnings and as far as jobs and being out of the out of the house more. And now most families are double earning families at this point because of the economy and housing prices that have gone up and those kinds of things. Uh, so how long that's going to last, I don't know. I would think probably we'll see the end of the uh, the better female drivers uh, within this generation. Would you say that people get better as they get older in terms of driving? Oh, they get way better once yeah. they get older. That sure. the whole macho thing goes from about you know twenty years of age until about somewhere around thirty eight, thirty nine. It's you could be safe to say twenty to forty, and past that, you you get the old uh, lessening of the of the testosterone kind of uh, yeah. uh, examples that we see on the road. Yeah, let's go to Gary on the open line. Hi, Gary. Hey, two points, uh, Mike and uh, Steve. Uh, Steve, you put my daughter through school. She's never had an accident and everything. Thank you. The second point is I'm driving a new GM. It's got all the warning signals, vehicles so close. The problem is, Steve and Mike, is that uh, the technology, I'm speeding constantly up and down uh, the streets. Uh, you don't realize it with the new technology. The vehicle is so self-contained. And uh, the other one, comment, Steve, I'm from Winnipeg, and I, I thought you wouldn't tell that story about the club on the steering wheel. Anyways, that's my <laughs> comment. Okay. Steve. Well, i got to be a Winnipeg. I'm a St. Paul's High School and University of Manitoba graduate, as oh, you might imagine. You so I, I froze to death in Winnipeg for eight years and then finally came to my senses. <laughs> okay. Thank you, for, thank you for the call, Gary. Brom on the open line. Hi. Hey. Uh, I was just going to call in about, uh, I think, as technology and vehicles has definitely improved for safety, but at the same time, it's taken a lot of the skill away from drivers. Because, for instance, you know, if we had more manual transmissions on the road or more people drove stick shift, that because when you drive stick shift, you have to be in tune with your vehicle. You can't just hit the gas and go. You got to know what gear you're in. And I think that's really cut back on people's skills because they no longer have to expect, you know, the car doesn't expect anything from them. The car just yeah, them. yeah, well, you yeah, know, you hit the nail on the head. Only 3% of the vehicles sold now are manual transmission, and it just right. uh, it takes you away from being at one with the vehicle. And when the vehicle's doing all sorts of things for you, it just takes you away from what is the attentiveness that you should have to the vehicle. And you don't know, as far as speed goes, some of them, I got Priuses now, and when they're on battery, they don't make any noise. And right. you right. think you're going slow, but you're not. It's deceiving. So maybe you're, you're yeah. going faster than you think. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. My guest is Steve Wallace. Your call's to him. Toll-free on your cell. It is star 9898. Let's go to Brent on the open line. Hi, Brent. Hey, guys. Just want to make a point. You get one test when you're 16, and no one ever checks up to make sure you still the skill when you're 40 or 50 or 60 or whatever. Seems like a broken, stupid system. 
It is a broken, stupid system. You're exactly right. The only other test you'll get is if you're an 80-year-old and you get a letter that says go to your doctor, and then your doctor gives you some of these tests that are ridiculous. And if you can't remember seven out of ten things, you're going for a road test. So you don't get anything from 16 to 80. But we do have a situation now in B.C. where it's the best testing because you have two tests. You have the test at, you know, 17, and then two years later you get another test at 19, then you're in the clear. But I have always maintained that people that have lots of tickets, people that have lots of crashes should be retested. If you want to put the fear of God into somebody, tell them they're going to have to go for a road test next week, and if you don't pass, we're taking your license away and putting you back into the learner stage. Now, when you talk about the seniors, seniors are being set upon. There's an election on now. Every senior should phone their MLAs and everyone running and say, the $200 fee that I have to pay out of my pocket because you gave me a letter that I have to go to the doctor is unconscionable. If the superintendent wants them to pay $200 and go to the doctor, the superintendent should be paying that money. Okay, that is a key point that we've talked about on the show before, and maybe we should do some more on it for sure. Would, Would you say, Steve, that if you were to change the rules here, in British Columbia on the driver's licensing and testing system, what would be sort of top priority for you to make things better? The people that are killing people are the ones that are speeding, the ones that are having excessive number of crashes. Test them. Once you've had three blamable crashes or two blamable crashes or whatever, that's the person you want to test. Once you've had the excessive speeding, you want to put the fear of God into somebody? Excessive speeding, yeah, you take the car away for a week, but put them through a road test. Does any other jurisdiction do that? Some of the jurisdictions in the U.S. do. Um, I don't. I can't name them automatically, but I know at one of our conventions they had a severe retesting regime in, in a couple of the states, and it does put the fear of God into you when you yeah. when you know you have to go for a road test. It's an interesting idea. Let's squeeze another call in here. Alana, hi. Hi there. Hi there. Go ahead. Um, while I agree with most things that you're saying about speed, I do have one thing that I'd like to point out to Chris. He mentioned that more women are on the road because of the economy and housing prices and they're in the workforce. Actually, more women are on the road because they are working. They choose to work. They can work. They're driving their kids around to hockey, to skating, to work, to meetings, etc. So I think that he needs to kind of retract that. Okay, Steve. Steve, what would you like to say on that? We've got a minute left. Uh, more women are on the road for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, and they do double duty. A lot of them have jobs, and then they have to do the household stuff. So uh, we're seeing many, many more women on the road, and again, they're safer drivers. Steve, thank you for coming on. Hey, anytime, Mike.